What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast. I am here today with Robin Toft, who is the uh, founder and chairman of the Toft Group. She is also a book author of a book that was released a few months ago called We Can. We're going to talk more about that. Um, First of all, welcome, Robin. Thanks, Aaron. Thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. And uh, we're in a beautiful spot here down on Oyster Point in your offices, uh, South San Francisco. And as I had mentioned, this is sort of fun doing this back to back because the last person I interviewed was Katie Couric at her place in New York. So, you know, we're all in good company here. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today because um, you and I have known of each known of each other for a while. But I'm really thrilled to be able to sit down and, and, you know, dig in. I guess where I'd like to start is you going back to Michigan State where you were in college, I noticed that you had an early interest in biotech and healthcare. Not to say that that's abnormal or anything like that, but usually there's some sort of trigger that has sent someone down a path and whether they have a doctor that's a scientist, I mean, a parent that's a scientist or a doctor, but let's talk about, you know, what got you interested in that field early. Great question. I think as a kid, first of all, neither of my parents went to college. So as a child, I was way into the outdoors and nature. And I think I was STEM before that was even a word. I was all about... That's not surprising the least bit, by the way. Yeah, science and math. And I naturally excelled at those things. And I was really great at those in in, uh, high school. And I graduated, went into college, and I just said I wanted to take all the science and math and just ace all my classes. And at some point along the way, I met a college um, counselor, and he said, you know, what are you studying? What's your profession? And I said, I'm just going to study biology. And he said, but there's no job at the end of the, the road for that. You know, you don't want to just be a biology major. And that was great advice. He said, why not a medical technologist or what we call in California clinical lab scientist? And I went, well, that sounds interesting. What's that? And he said, well, it's pre-med work, it's, you know, and you will come out and you, you can work in a lab. There's actually a job that goes with that. And I said, that sounds great. I just want to ace my classes, right? So I went back to, you know, to work, and I uh, really scored high on all you know, classes that I took. In the end, I came out, put on a white lab coat, and went, what have I done? I had never walked into a clinical reference lab, and it's a great, brilliant occupation and the, the incredible foundation for the rest of my life. But I realized pretty early on that I'd rather be talking about it than doing it. I mean, I'm all about, you know, new discoveries, new science, but I had a real gift for, you know, teaching it, if you will. Well, it's interesting, and I'm going to hazard a guess that you're not the first person that's ever happened to in any field, right? I think a lot of times the idea of a job is always um, a little more exciting than the actual job itself. And this will be a nice part of our story arc today because uh, part of why we're here today is because you did ultimately decide to pursue your passion. Um, Before we get there, and this is relevant to that, you did spend 20 years in sales, mainly in the biotech space. And, you know, I think based on what I had um, learned from some of your other interviews, you're actually really good at it. The problem was you didn't have that passion around it. And, you know, let's talk about why it's so important to have passion for what you do. I think we're probably bridging into some of the book content now, too. But I know that's something that's really in your your brand and in your personality. So what is the, the importance of being passionate about what you do? 
Yeah, so I think finding your purpose and your passion project is the single most important thing that every career professional needs to worry about throughout their career, and it happens to each of us at a different point. <clears throat> so as I said, I started in the lab. I raised my hand, said I would need to be in sales, and no one would let me. Then I walked across the street. I informed my employer, and I walked across the street to the competitor, asked if I could be in sales, and they let me. And I was from immediately the moment I walked in the top performer in a 400-person sales company, um, and the way I did that was just by working exceptionally hard and following guidance from who is now one of my best male mentors I've ever had in my life. And he taught me the three reasons rule, which has created the foundation for everything I do and a lot of the keynote that I give, which is uh, what's in it for them. If there are at least three good reasons that someone should do something, they will likely do it. And if you can't come up with three good reasons that it's in their best interest to do something, then they won't do it. And I was always selling a service. I started out with lab services. Um, so that's the truth of, of my existence. We actually, actually make offers like that today to people when we're presenting job and employment opportunities, right? So three reasons will serve you really well. I followed a formulaic thing. I was immediately wildly successful because I was working hard and running circles around everyone and just like really outperforming the whole sales organization. And by the end of the year, I was exhausted and I walked into the CEO's office and said, I have to resign because <laughs> and he said, why? And they had already known that I was the top performer. You know, they stopped publishing rankings. And I said, I'm just exhausted. So this overworking, overachieving, outperforming yourself phenomenon I see a lot in women. And what I tell them is to really step back from that and really think long and hard about where is your passion? You know, not just, am I good at what I do? Well, it's a, it's a great point. And I think as I'm asking that question to you, I'm thinking to myself, you know, that's sort of a no duh, like everyone says that, but I think very few people internalize that. And a lot of people do end up heading down a path. Now you run an executive search firm and um, we'll talk more about how we get into that in a second. I help a lot of people anecdotally and it's something that I've always liked doing and been passionate about. But I do find that there are people that end up in roles and I can tell they're not happy in those roles and they can't ever seem to find a way out, which is crazy to me. So I think your advice, really knowing like what's in it for them, what's in it for, you know, the other stakeholders is, is pretty important, right? Now, one of the things that was a critical piece to how you landed where you did is age 45, so a couple of years ago, um, you learned that you had colon cancer and this diagnosis led to this major pivot point. I think you had already figured out that sales is not where you wanted to go, but you were in this searching, soul searching space. Talk about that process and how that led you to founding the Toff Group. Thanks so much. So about three years before I landed in the ER, I knew that I should be in probably what is called human resources. Um, I love developing and advancing people, and that was really my passion when I was leading big sales organizations is I really like to help advance people, right? So I thought I should do it, and at a certain point, I even went out and interviewed with a lot of executive search firms, but then I had these big, huge, you know, officer-level roles in sales. So uh, what happened was I was on a flight to Europe. I used to go every two weeks for a big multinational company that I was working for, and I got sick as a dog on a plane, and I, I was still sick the entire trip, came back, went to the ER, small coast of California, and they walked in 12 hours later and told me I had colon cancer. Um, I was completely obstructed, and I needed emergency surgery. And it wow. rocked, yeah, it rocked my world. I was like, how did this happen to me? I had been selling oncology products and services you know, for 20 years, never dreamed in my wildest dreams. I was at the peak of my fitness and my health and all this. 
that this would happen to me. So um, I urge everyone uh, to really do this exercise today. If you had a life and death experience and you knew you may not survive it, which is what I was facing in that moment, would you quit your job? And if the answer to that is yes, you need to quit your job today. You need to really, you need to find your passion in this world and make sure you're doing that. And that was the moment when I knew, just right there in the emergency room, and the next day when I woke up from surgery, cancer-free, by the way, because they did the surgery and I had six months of chemo and it has not come back after 12 years. That's awesome, Super by the way. thrilled. Um, but, but that I was going to do my passion project. And I had thinking, you know, everything that happens, and a lot of things happen along each of our trajectories, um, I always say to myself, what can I learn from this, right? And the what can I learn from this is I need to get in my passion place. And what I realized is I needed to build my own executive search firm, a really different one. And I like to say I built it like biotech because that's all I knew. I put a giant mission in the middle. Ours is changing the future of medicine, one relationship at a time. And my whole goal and intention was to change the way cancer is treated in our lifetime because it is um, inhumane and you know, chemo and radiation is not a good solution cell therapy, immunotherapy, all the things that are coming down the pipe are really exciting. So I'm like, if I can get people in all the right seats, then I can change the world. So like many passions, that's how it started. Um, I built a company, I hired the best and brightest, I paid them exceptionally well, and we had a great time. Um, I have now 20 employees, three offices, San Diego, San Francisco, Boston. Um, and, and now today, the biggest circumstance that's facing the biotech industry and actually all industries is a, a gigantic talent crisis. And the answer to the talent crisis is women and millennials. So I, since the beginning of time, when building my search firm, I actually have 14 out of 20 women working for me. I knew that women had to work harder to get to the same point in their career. So I was um, I had intentional bias, if you will, in hiring them. Um, so we, have, we had this whole intention to meet all executive professional women. Um, so it serves me well today because, honestly, the answer is women and millennials and accelerating them along their progression. Well, you also talk a lot about the importance of diversity, right? And I think a lot of people hear this. I'm not sure everyone really understands like why it makes sense. I mean, yes, it's nice to have a variety of faces around the table, but there's actually a business reason behind this. And so let's talk about that beyond just the millennials and the women. You know, there are lots of other ways that we can include diversity in the mix. And you're in a position right now where you can actually help companies get better about that. So let's talk a little bit about that importance. Thank you so much. Um, diversity is not a quotas thing. It's, uh, it's really good for business. And the three reasons are, in times of talent crisis, the underemployed and unemployed populations need to all be working, right? And um, they need to be rapidly progressed and developed. Um, we are heading towards the biggest global talent crisis from an overinvestment in industry, if you will. So we've had an unprecedented investment in our industries and in many industries in the past two years. And there are skyscrapers, empty skyscrapers all up and down our street here without enough people to sit in the seats. So that's number one. By hiring diversity at the top, you can get more diversity into your companies. Two is it enhances innovation. We're in an innovation era, innovation culture. And by having diverse conversations around the table, um, companies are more innovative. And three, financial performance improves. And there is a lot of data that shows that diverse executive teams and boards perform better on Wall Street. 
So those are three great reasons. The fourth is that women are largely consumers of all products, right? Including healthcare and so many of the, the things that go on in the world today. So not having that representation at the top is bad for business. So there are four exceedingly good reasons why diversity makes sense in smart companies are creating the mantra at the, from the top down, CEO down, when given a choice, we choose diversity. J&J &J puts it on the walls. It's what we should do. Yeah, it is what we should do. I guess I didn't put this in our sort of prep questions, but I do want to touch on this. And I'm guessing you probably cover this a little bit in the book. I think part of the issue is, and I heard some of this from LinkedIn, that people would like to do more around diversity. Um, obviously, there's the simple matter of hiring your firm, right? Or talking to a Kim Hunter, who I'm assuming you know from the Grant Foundation. But what are some practical things people can do to sort of widen their circle? Because I think part of our problem is, is like if you come from a particular school or background and maybe you didn't have the widest circle of uh, colleagues or, or people you're connected to, it does limit who it is that you feel like you can reach out to. So what are things that companies can do to help widen that circle so that they do, they do have a better capability of tapping into that diversity pool? Yeah, I think everybody has the obligation of expanding their networks and networking is a gift and a skill and it's something that we all need to be committed to. Um, this is really evident in the new board legislation in California, which suggests we need to have women on all public company boards. The problem with that is historically 70% of, of a board never went out to search and what the men that are sitting around the boardroom table are now realizing is they don't have the network. They don't know the executive female talent. So as you mentioned, one way is to hire an executive search firm. The other way is to know that you need to go out and meet them, right? And that's time consuming and elaborate. But I think insisting upon a diverse slate of candidates whenever you're interviewing anything, whether it's yourself, uh, your HR department surfacing candidates, um, not, some, some companies I've worked with won't even begin to interview unless there's a diverse set of candidates for them to interview. And I've had people hold out for at least, you know, two to three diversity candidates before they're going to start anything. So, you know, we actually have historically since the beginning of time placed 48% executive women into VP through C-level roles, which is amazing given that um, at the executive band, there's still 20% executive women and at the top, there's only five. So there's a lot of room for movement um, my personal bias is that I think the promotional criterion are not appropriate. So if we were really promoting people based upon teamwork, collaboration, ability to engage hearts and minds, uh, ability to lead well, um, having the right criterion for advancement, then women would accelerate. Well, that's a good segue into your book. And, and thank you for sharing that. So your book, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, it's called We Can, which I love, very powerful and empowering, and I'm looking at the cover right here. Uh, it's called The Executive Women's Guide to Career Advancement. So let's talk a little bit about this. And you know, one of the things that you mentioned uh, on Amazon is that it's very difficult to become a female executive in a seemingly male-dominated industries with thousands of years working against us. And I think Biotech in particular is even harder. There have been articles written about J.P. Morgan that there were more guys named John than there were female executives that you know showed up. That was two years ago. But um, let's talk a little bit about your book. And I know that we also have the audio version coming out, and that's exciting. So take it away. 
Yes, I'm super excited. The audio version should be available this week. Um, I think that the book is being uh, broadly accepted by men and women. I have all kinds of male CEOs that read it and say, this is not just for women, this is for everyone. Um, because this, it gives practical guidance and advice on how to accelerate your career yourself, how to take things into your own hands and really make something happen. And kind of at the, the and, and so I think a lot of people write books, but they're not practical. So keep in mind, I've led a search firm, an executive search firm for 10, and I was an industry professional for 25. So um, I kind of know the formula. A lot of women do, or a lot of executives do, but they don't have time to slow down and write it down, right? So I took that approach. Um, what I have, um, kind of the core of getting your, your own career progression to me is something that men do very naturally, is create value and ask for opportunity. I mean, that is core to the whole thing. And first you have to have confidence before you actually can head down that path. So we spend a lot of time working on how do you show up with confidence, even if you're not born with the confidence gene like me. Um, but creating value and asking for opportunity and organizing your entire self-presentation around achievements that you've actually done and value you've created for your employer. This has nothing to do with you. This has to do with you are employed by your company and your job is to create value. So when you create value, you have leverage and you can ask for opportunity and advancement. You don't ask for money. So let me tell you the flip side and how I see a lot of women run their careers. Um, they do it a lot like I was doing in the early days. They're outperforming everyone, they're overachieving, they're workaholics, they're running hard and fast, and then they go home and they do the same thing at home, and then they go to work and they do the same thing and they wear themselves out, then they pound their fist on the desk and they say, why isn't anyone noticing me? I need more money, I'm out. And they even walk away from the workplace. And um, the men around them think, well, they're just spending time with their family, you know, that's what we thought was gonna happen. So what I also um, advocate in the book is spending 80% of your time doing a great job at work, or actually I say 75%, and 25% planning your career, as most men around you do, um, thinking about what things will advance your company and what can you do to add value, and then moving yourself into that position. Well, that's great advice, and I guess I'm gonna ask a self-serving question. You asked me at the before we get started, what can I do to, to sort of help you on this? I recruit a lot of folks to speak at events. So South by Southwest, um, JP Morgan, Chase, we do our own analytics summit. And one of the things I learned early days as I sought to achieve a balance of, you know, 50-50 men, women, and certainly a good swath of people that were not, you know, white and middle-aged like myself. And what I found is you almost have to ask like a two-to-one ratio of folks that are non-white males to get a balance. And and I know you touched on this, I think, in the ESPN uh, podcast you did, which we'll also talk about in a second. What can how, – how is it that I can and we can do a better job at convincing people – that probably are as, if not more qualified to, whether it's speak, whether it's to you know take a role or whatever. And I know you do some of that in the book, but what, what can you do to say, look, you are capable, how do you build that confidence in them to really know that they, they will do an amazing job and that they don't say no just because they're sort of so self-critical that you know they don't allow it to, to happen? I'm gonna use an example that I run across in executive search almost every day. Uh, when we're calling women, two things happen. One is they, they don't even answer the call or call back. 
But when they do take the call, the first thing out of their mouths is why they're not qualified for the role. And I think this is in general, as you say, they're very um, humble and trying to be honest and, and um, direct. Uh, rather than telling me why they are qualified and bridging any gaps that may be in their employment history the way men typically do. So I think learning to behave differently and to realize that, for instance, in the employment world, uh, men apply for jobs when they have 50% of the requirements met. And in today's universe, that's really important because there is no perfect candidate and no one has 100%, but women wait till they have 100%. And that um, traces all the way back for me. I don't know. Uh, there's a, a woman, the CEO of Girls Who Code has a TED Talk about uh, women were raised to be perfect. Girls are raised to be perfect and men are raised to be brave. And I think that's really tragic, right? So um, to put away your perfectionism and to realize that no one is perfect and that you have to play to win and you, you, know, you miss 100% of shots you don't take. So just behaving in a way that at least demonstrates outwardly that you are confident is important. Yeah, it does. And I, it's crazy to think about that stat of 50%. And yeah, you know, 50%. as a guy that's probably done that once or twice, you know. Um, I, I'm going to say everything I've ever applied for or promoted myself into, I was wildly underqualified for. And of course, we're afraid. But that's what men do. Well, and I think we sell ourselves short as people, right? It's like we... There's a reason why you may have gotten to where you are. Mm -hmm. And so any job, as you mentioned, you're not ever going to be perfectly qualified. And if you are, then you probably are already have moved past that role. So knowing and trusting in the fact that you got to where you did for a reason and that there are so many opportunities, things like your book, things like, you know, podcasts, all sorts of great, uh, and we'll talk about mentorship in a minute, ways to get, you know, to, to sort of uh, eliminate that gap in terms of what your skills are. And part of that is just having the confidence, as you said, to, to know that you can go out and find the right tools and resources to overcome that. It's a lot about mindset, too. So um, there's a lot of learning one can do on mindset. And I personally have been a huge gi giant fan of Tony Robbins' Unleash the Power Within. You know, just really taking seminars, books, and workshops seriously and, and living that. I mean, you really have to practice. One of the other things... I think this is probably in the book, but I know it's definitely in the, the podcast, which I referenced, which is last year you did this amazing podcast on ESPN's BizTalk Radio. And one of the things you, you suggested that I absolutely loved was that employees seek out mentorship from those they look up to or aspire to be. Let's talk about why that's so important. I think people don't ask for mentorship or look to mentorship. And if they do, maybe they look in the wrong places. So first of all, if, if there are women listening to this podcast, um, most of your best mentors will be men because uh, most of the men in the positions above you are men. Uh, most of the, the people in the positions above you are men. Um, so please don't rule those people out. We all think we need to flock to the same group of you know, wildly successful women, and they don't have time. And besides, they uh, don't necessarily have the formula either. So you know, we, what, what we need to do is identify someone who is two to three steps ahead of you and beyond in your career and really ask them to, to, to be your mentor and you need to make it worth their time. So keep in mind every single person you might be asking has a lot of other things they could do with their time. So you need to be you know, very grateful and thankful and you know, make it convenient to them and make it um, non-threatening, but you still have to ask right? 
can we please just meet for coffee? I had a young woman come. Um, she had seen me win an award at a presentation ceremony, and she came. She approached me thereafter and asked me if she could come by my office. And I thought, that's really brave of her, so of course, yes. And from the minute she walked in, I knew that she needed to work for my company, but we didn't have any openings. She had only been in executive search one year, and I was running the search firm, right? So um, six months later, we had an opening. I called her. So you cannot be afraid of asking someone to be your mentor. And the other thing I wanna say here about coaches. So um, I consider yourself, you are the CEO of you. You are you know, responsible for strategic planning 25% of your time and really thinking about how to make yourself better. An executive coach, you should not wait for your company to assign one. You should absolutely hire one. I've had approximately five so far in my career that I've hired myself. And that is a person that, like a professional athlete that you are, you're an athlete in the workplace, um, you want to get really truthful guidance. And when you hire this coach, be prepared to do the homework. This is like career therapy, if you will. They're going to give you really tough assignments. They're going to make you get honest with yourself and ask yourself hard questions about your leadership competencies and all of that. And they're going to be truthful. And I would say that's the only way you get better is, and that's growth mindset, is is looking outside yourself for people to give you guidance. Well, two thoughts to build on that. So that is great advice. One, I would say I look for people when I mentor exactly the same way you do. I like the bravery or the fierceness. The people that show up and are prepared, I'm particularly impressed with. You know, I met a guy yesterday and I was only offering to help him. His brother works for us. And he came and he had listened to some of my podcasts. He knew that I had written a book. He like wanted to ask very specific questions. And the thing is, is like, I don't necessarily need that, but there are people that do have a level of vanity. And if you do a little bit of research, it goes a long way. And it shows that you actually cared enough to take the time to sort of prepare for that and ask good questions. Um, yeah, value that time. That is their gift to you. And you need to show up as if you really are hungry and, and um, you're choosing them because they're fearless. Um, that's very interesting. Fearlessness is the number one criterion I get asked for, to search for for CEOs. And I think that's also a limitation of why there aren't more women at the top. Fearlessness and being fierce is a requirement. So, And I think you can get there through confidence, competence, which I define as achievements, and connections. And those three, are, three C's are the elements to being this fearless CEO. Well, I, I love it. And uh, it's funny, we just got a new puppy, and her name is Rue, and it's a girl. And she is fearless. Like it's our second dog, and it's funny to see her interact with our other dog. But I mentioned that just because my wife and I have said no fewer than a dozen times. She embodies fearlessness. Fearlessness. So, that yes. is your greatest strength as an executive, is to not hesitate and to be brave. And that's not always easy. But I think. Um, oh, what I was going to say is about the executive coach. I totally agree. One of the things that I have found that I've learned from a guy named Milo that I've coached with is feedback is a gift. Mm -hmm. And it's hard at first because it feels like someone's attacking you or that you know, you're know you sort of taking those uncomfortable things that you don't like about yourself and unpacking them. If you get good at taking feedback, I'm assuming you'll agree with this, you're nodding your head, it's such a good way. Even if it's not true, it's that perception sometimes. But knowing that if this is what's out there in the ethos about you or how people are perceiving or how you do things, 
to understand why that is and to do something about it can only help you versus being defensive or saying, oh, that's their problem, not my problem. And at the same time, there will be people that come along that maybe are not particularly productive and will say something that maybe is untrue. And it's good to understand that for what it is, right? It's only something that someone's saying, but really understanding how to process that feedback and use it and use it productively. I love what you just said, Aaron. Um, you know, I, we had a speaker come in to my company. Her name is Eve Grudnitsky, and she's um, really great at presenting growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And what I learned at that time that 65% of people in the US are actually fixed mindset, and that's where feedback feels like a knife to the back. And a growth mindset person welcomes, appreciates, and grows when given feedback. So you need to be incredibly grateful for it. Well, and, and the last thing I'll say before we get into the last part of the interview is you may, made the analogy to professional athletes. Professional athletes get better by pushing themselves. There's a woman um, blanking on her name who's the gymnast who just you know did these two new moves that no one's ever done before. And she's already at the top of her game. And basically, she's like, look, you don't get better without trying new things and constantly improving yourself. So I think it is that thing to think about is the smartest and best and highest performers in the world are constantly pushing themselves in one of the ways yeah. is through feedback. There's a refrain through my book that says anything that's been done before, I can do, right? I just need to ask for guidance and advice to those people that have actually accomplished it, right? So it's not as if we're trying to do something Herculean that's never been achieved, uh, being a professional executive, there is a path and you can learn it. Right. Well, next question, which I always is funny to me asking people who have written books is, you know, I like to help our listeners build their library. Um, are there any books other than We Can, which we're strongly recommending people check out that you've read recently, nonfiction or business that has helped you or that, you know, really sort of left a, a mark with you? Well, I've got two that I've been reading recently. Um, the first one is called, it's called Play Bigger. And it's how innovators create and dominate markets. So you can see that I'm still very much into this uh, growth. How do we grow businesses and companies? Um, it's written by some Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. And it talks about market uh, category creation and just really being the first mover um, so when you think about that, you can think about Uber versus Lyft. The first player gets about 90% share. So how do you create a market? Um, the second one that I'm reading right now was actually recommended by my Porsche dealer, uh, Sales Guy, which I found very interesting. Never split the difference. Um, and this is by Chris Voss. He's a uh, FBI hostage negotiator. And, you know, it's negotiated as if your life depended upon it. So again, I still believe that um, sales is a really good thing. It makes the world go round and really understanding, and this comes into play when you advance your own career, how do you make it um, something that's in the best interest of your company that they can allow you to move into your next opportunity? And that's a negotiation. That's a negotiation with your employer and also with your spouse and your family and everything that we do in this world. It's really good if you can uh, at least get your three reasons rule in play um, that I know how to have the right conversations so that I can move myself forward. And don't forget that if you're going to move within your company, you need to have a succession strategy behind you or no one's going to let you move. So if you've created, you know, no one's ever going to move you out of that role because you're so um, pivotal, you haven't created, you haven't planned properly. Well, and that's a good one. I think a lot of people don't think about that. I know that 
my boss, Jim Weiss, whom you know, has always talked about this plus four, right? So having those people behind you and ideally one of them, if not all of them, can sort of help fill that role. And the, the other one that you touched on that I do like is people sometimes are afraid to ask what they want, right? And I've actually been fortunate. I've had people on my team and I've been surprised, but at the same time, I've said, look, good for you for being firm about what it is you're asking for, right? And I can tell they've really thought about it. Isn't it beautiful? It's amazing. I coach people that, um, so first of all, people come to me dissatisfied with their employers all the time because I'm in executive search and they're telling me this just horror story of what's going on. And uh, this can be CEOs, this can be everyone. So let's assume as a CEO, I say, have you told the board? I, I mean, have you told your company? And whatever role you're in, if you're dissatisfied, your first job is to go back there and describe why this is not constructive for you or anyone else around you and that you really love working there, but you want to give them this guidance and, and give them the first opportunity to respond. If they don't respond, then they've been well you know, informed that you might have to make a move. Um, but you want to be incredibly respectful to this employer and make sure that they know how you feel. Yeah, and and what you'll see there is either A, they'll say, gee, I didn't even know. Right. B, thank you for bringing it to my attention and we're not going to do anything and then you've got your answer. Or C, let's fix it, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, if you do need to resign, resigning gracefully is the best way to do it. Don't shock your employer. Don't make them feel you know, upset because you didn't tell them what really transpired, um, you know, have the conversations. Don't be afraid. And I think a lot of people shy away from tough conversations because they, they're not fearless. Yeah. And back to the confidence thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, last couple of questions. This next one is a little bit of a fun one, but I always like to find out something about you that people don't know that you're willing to share. Well, a lot of people who know me think I'm type A all the time and really hardcore, you know, intense, probably even on the weekends. And I will tell you that um, my secret of survival is to unplug completely, be out in nature, walking my three Labrador retrievers on a trail, on the beach, on the, in, alone, um, recharging my batteries. And I think without doing that, I would never be able to perform at the level that I do. So I think that would really shock people because they, they yeah. think I have one speed. Well, and based on, I, I don't know you that well, but mm-hmm. based on your persona and the little I, I have figured out that is, I shouldn't say shocking. I think good executives actually do take that time to meditate and to unplug. Zen. You have to really, and that's where I find all my best ideas, my best thoughts. I mean, you need to be, uh, you got to find your own solution for recharging your own batteries, but that's mine. Well, it's a good one. And then last but not least, and this is truly a fun one. It's the one that I find a lot of people have a hard time prepping for, but um, I like to have this theoretical, you're stranded on a deserted island, you can pick one album, which album would you pick and why? So uh, this one could also surprise you. So um, I would go with George Winston, um, All Seasons. He's an American pianist and it's really relaxing and beautiful music because when I'm out here on this desert island, I'm just going to be totally zen with no baggage whatsoever. Um, That's my goal in life is to live my life without baggage. And just so it it would be a beautiful, amazing, I wouldn't want to conflict with nature and and play anything beyond that. Well, it's a great choice. I've listened to that once or twice myself. Uh, This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, host of the What to Know podcast, and I've just spent the last half hour speaking with Robin Toft, who is the founder and chairman of the Toft Group, also um, author of We Can, the Executive Women's Guide to Career Advancement. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time, Robin. It's been my extreme pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, 
and view the podcast page at whwillgroup.com slash what to know.